Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We're continuing our rewatch of The Leftovers today as we hit episode eight from season two, International Assassin. My name is Justin Hamilton, and can someone please turn off that fire alarm so we can enjoy Big Squid? today's podcast where we not only cover the episode International Assassin for season two of The Leftovers, but we also will be discussing my favorite episode of TV of all time. Yep, I'm calling it. I was trying to think of my favorite TV episodes ever and trying to work out how to come to that conclusion because there are series that I love, but I can't necessarily discern an episode that stands out to me. For me, a favourite episode has to be in some ways standalone, but also express the greater themes of the series I'm watching. I also want the episode to take a big swing, whether it is in production or storytelling or both. So as an example, some of my favourite TV episodes include the ER episode, Hell or High Water, from Season 2, Episode 7. It was the episode where Doug Ross, as played by George Clooney, Well before the international star he is today, he saves a young boy from drowning in a drain pipe. It's a spectacular episode, and it was the episode that I watched that made me declare, that guy's going to be a movie star. And I stood by that for a long time before it came true. Uh, Some pretty tough years. I took a lot of shit for that, but sometimes you just have to hold the course. 
But uh, I love that episode. That's one of those episodes that you could just watch by yourself and you would get the full ER experience. I love the season four, episode seven episode of Mad Men. It's called The Suitcase. It's where Don and Peggy have to spend the night at the office coming up with a new advert. Now, I know that doesn't sound exciting, but I think it is a perfect episode of television and it signals a subtle shift in the story that propels it all the way to the finish line. Uh, The third episode of season one of True Detective, The Locked Room, that blew me away as Russ Cole talks about how the cosmos works, incorporating Lovecraftian horror and fifth dimensional science into a revelation of monsters always hiding at the end of a story. It has a final scene that even when I'm thinking about it, I'm actually looking at the hairs of my arms and they are standing up. It still has that kind of power over me. Uh, There's an episode of Lost. Season 4, episode 5, we, uh, that one is called The Constant and it's where Desmond ends up in a situation that is not unlike what Dr. Manhattan has to deal with. It is also the episode that made me know Damon Lindelof would knock a Watchmen series out of the park. And if you think I'm exaggerating or tooting my own horn here, remember why this podcast is called Big Squid. Uh, Also, I think it was episode eight of Twin Peaks The Return, where, you know, and I've talked about this before, but when I was watching that series, about episodes five and six, I wasn't sure if I was into it and I wasn't sure if I was getting what I wanted out of it. Then I remember episode eight hit and the most normal thing that happens in that episode is that 15 minutes in Nine Inch Nails plays at this little club. That is the most normal thing that happens in that episode, but it made me realise I'm watching this TV series incorrectly and I had to broaden my horizons to enjoy it for the art that it was. I love everything about this episode of The Leftovers. When I first watched this series, I was loving every episode and completely locked in, but this episode the series transcended and became something else for me. I was not only blown away by the story, but I also found it incredibly inspiring. It also reminded me that when it comes to storytelling, I love ambiguity, which is a quality that doesn't really exist in the world of stand-up comedy. In fact, with this episode reminding me that I love the ambiguous, it also reminded me why I have worked at becoming a storyteller and in the process made me lose a little bit of interest in the art of stand-up comedy. I still love stand-up. I still enjoy stand-up, but the process of creating a show every year is no longer high on my commitments. And that is why in some ways it's become a secondary job for me. I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for a different type of truth in the work that I create. And this is why you don't see me performing as much anymore. I used to do hundreds and hundreds of gigs a year and I don't regret any of that, and I learned a lot from it, and it also helped give me a career, you know, and creating shows for the Comedy Festival and the Adelaide Fringe, it was just a regular part of my life. But, you know, when it comes to ambiguity, if you want to explore that, it's really hard to do it in the world of stand-up, because you can't deliver a set-up for a joke and finish with, so, what do you think? This 
TV series and this episode reminded me of what I love about stories and it paved the way for my viewing pleasure over the next few years. That is why I loved the Twin Peaks revival. That is why I loved watching the TV series Legion. That is why I loved the moment the UFO appears in season two of Fargo. That is why I love the rest of this series like nothing else. And for those of you who saw my one person plays the ballad of John Tildanimus, this is the seed that was planted that helped me grow that work. Those shows weren't for everyone, but I have little interest in being someone who appeals to the broader public. I want to find my people and I want to not only entertain them, but I want to be in conversation with them. And that's with you. This, to me, is what it is all about. This is how we end up with this podcast. This is how you end up with this series of me talking about The Leftovers. This whole episode inspired me to just really dig back into storytelling. And this whole run of The Leftovers was inspired by this episode and me just wanting to discuss it with you so much. This is all about International Assassin. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate your company and thoughts. And like the leftovers, let's begin with a question. Shall we begin? Hello, hello, hello. Senator, this is Kevin Garvey. Kevin? So nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. (laughs) Would you like some water, Senator? Never touch the stuff. Kevin, I'm sorry about all the security. I don't know if God has told you, but we received credible intelligence that someone may be trying to assassinate me. Now, why do you think someone would want to do that? Murder me. Well, I don't know. It's because I stick to you, Kevin. We begin on a close-up of a bathtub as water trickles down the side. There is a moment of quiet before Kevin Garvey lurches out of the water, gasping for air. He pushes through the surface, choking, and slips out onto the bathroom tiles, naked, confused. Kevin looks around, wondering how he ended up in this place. As he attempts to calm himself and gain some sense of composure, he looks at himself in the mirror. It is almost as if Kevin doesn't recognise himself for a moment. He wraps himself in a towel and walks into the bedroom. It looks clean, untouched. It is like Kevin just checked in. Suddenly the TV turns on, just for a moment, incapable of finding a channel, squealing, squawking, the connection lost between the channels, a grey static. It turns off as suddenly as it turned on. Kevin walks towards the wardrobe that has a plaque on the door. It is inscribed with the following quote from Epictetus. Know first who you are, and then adorn yourself accordingly. Kevin opens the door and looks inside and finds clerical robes, the white uniform of the guilty remnant, a black suit with a white shirt, and his old Mapleton police uniform. He chooses the suit and dresses himself. There's a knock at the door, and when Kevin answers, there's a man delivering flowers. The man asks if he is Kevin Harvey. Kevin corrects him and says, Garvey. The man looks at him. No, It's Harvey. Kevin nods, confused, takes the flowers and realises he doesn't have any money. He takes the flowers inside and looks for his wallet. When he finds his wallet, it is full of euros. He tries to tell the delivery man who then suddenly attacks him. A brutal fight breaks out. This man is trying to kill Kevin. 
Eventually, Kevin subdues him by slamming his head into the marble table, killing the delivery man instantly. Laying on the ground, his breathing short and deep, Kevin calms himself and immediately gets up and dabs a cut on his hand with some disinfectant and wraps it in some gauze. He then walks out of his room to take the elevator downstairs. The doors open, but the fire alarm sounds, so Kevin takes the stairs. On the way down, he looks outside and sees a little girl standing by the edge of the pool, looking down at the water, lost in thought. Kevin approaches a woman who works at the hotel, but she's distracted. It appears most of the people there, from the guests to the staff, are all distracted by a bird in the foyer. Kevin asks about the flowers, but the woman doesn't know. She instead sends him to talk to the concierge. Kevin looks over, and it is Virgil. He walks over to Virgil, desperate, confused. What the fuck is happening, he asks. Virgil talks about the fire alarm going off and the bird flying around the foyer, but Kevin isn't interested in any of that. Virgil calmly looks at Kevin and slips him a note that says to meet him downstairs in the garage. He then adds, I hope they don't catch that bird. Kevin begins to head downstairs, but he looks outside and sees the little girl floating face down in the swimming pool. He quickly runs outside and leaps into the water, dragging the girl out onto the tiles. He works to revive her and is relieved when she spits up water and begins to breathe. From behind, a man appears. He's overweight, boorish, awful, and he yells at Kevin for being near his girl. Kevin fires back that she was drowning in the pool. The man grabs the girl by the arm and tells her off. She knows she can't swim. What a foolish little girl. Kevin reprimands the man, but in turn, he tells Kevin to mind his own business. Kevin watches as the man drags the little girl away, confused, curious as to what just happened. Kevin walks down into the hotel's garage and walks past two women who speak passionately about something in a foreign language. They stop talking as Kevin walks by and eye him suspiciously. Ahead, a car flashes its lights and Kevin walks towards it. Inside the car is Virgil, so Kevin slides into the passenger seat. Before Kevin can talk, Virgil asks why he is wet. Kevin explains what happened with the little girl, but Virgil isn't interested in that part of the story. He needs to know that Kevin hasn't drunk any water. That is the rule of this place that they find themselves in. You cannot drink the water, no matter how thirsty you are. Kevin wants to know where they are, and when Virgil replies that it is a hotel, Kevin doesn't believe this. This isn't just a hotel. Someone just tried to kill him. Virgil says it makes sense because of the way he's dressed. Kevin is dressed as an international assassin. None of this makes sense to Kevin. One minute he's drinking poison at Virgil's home, and the next minute he's waking up submerged in a bathtub in a hotel. Virgil explains that Kevin has to stop thinking in linear terms. Here in this place, where Patty is a master, she's running to become president. In this place, Kevin checked into the hotel as Kevin Harvey, that he's donated $50,000 to her campaign so he can get close to Patty, and then when he does, he can kill her. There is a gun in her hotel room taped to the bottom of the toilet, and when he gets in there, he can find the gun and do the job. Once she is dead, he is free to return home. Virgil warns Kevin not to hesitate because she will try to trick him. Kevin is confused by one detail. If I had to die to be here, how are you here? Kevin asks. Virgil just smiles and explains he is atoning. They both watch as Paddy's people arrive at the hotel. Kevin returns to his room and finds that his wardrobe now has a new suit waiting for him. There are no choices to make, it is just the suit. 
He checks the flowers and finds a card that has a simple illustration on the cover of a man next to a well. It says, get well soon, but inside the card is blank. Once again, the TV turns on suddenly, whining, caught between worlds and raining static on the screen. It lasts longer and he can hear muffled voices, but it gives out before he can make any sense of it. The fire alarm begins again and Kevin leaves his room and bumps into the man with the little girl. They're both oblivious to the alarm and when Kevin suggests they go down into the foyer, the man waves him off. It is either a false alarm or they're going to burn to death in their room. Downstairs, everyone from the hotel stands outside. Kevin walks past one of the women who was down in the garage. It turns out she's a nurse and she's arguing with a staff member while holding the type of cooler that is used to transport donor hearts for people who need a transplant. Kevin spies a bellhop holding a package and balloons. They lock eyes, so Kevin goes to speak to him. Are they for me? Kevin asks. Are you Mary Jamison? The bellhop replies. The fire alarm stops and Kevin follows the bellhop as he delivers the package and balloons to a woman who looks like Matt Jamison's wife. Before he can do anything, Kevin is attacked and taken away by members of the guilty remnant. Down away from everyone, Kevin is handcuffed to a chair and attached to a lie detector machine. He is suddenly confronted by Gladys, who works for Paddy. She is here to ask questions of Kevin, to vet him, to make certain that he is safe before he meets Paddy to know that he belongs. She asks his name and when he says Kevin Harvey, the lie detector flashes red. A man walks up and sprays water into Kevin's eyes. He's asked more questions, but this time Kevin answers honestly and the light remains dormant. When he's asked why he smokes, Kevin replies it is because he is addicted to nicotine. The lie detector flashes red and he's again sprayed in the eyes with the water. Kevin changes his answer. He smokes because the world ended and this is how he remembers. Gladys is happy with this response, uncuffs him and asks him if he'd like a drink of water. Kevin says he's not thirsty and he's the only one who notices the lie detector flashing red. Gladys and her cronies are too busy packing up. They're grateful for Kevin's support. Back in his hotel room, Kevin cleans his face and eyes when the TV turns on again. This time the image focuses and Kevin can see someone on the screen. It is his father, Kevin Garvey Sr., There are people sitting behind him in a hotel room that looks exactly like the hotel room that Kevin Jr. is in, and his father has white paint on his face. He sits shirtless and addresses the screen because he can see his son. He tells Kevin he's in Perth, Australia. G'day, Australia. And he hopes this is real because he's on a drug called God's Tongue. He sent Kevin flowers with a message, but Kevin explains the card was blank. The message was that he has to take Paddy to the well. Kevin doesn't know what this means. Kevin explains to his father that he's supposed to assassinate Paddy, but Kevin Sr. scoffs at this idea because his son isn't an assassin. Kevin Sr. tells his son to be strong and that he loves him before the image on the TV winks out. There's a knock at the door and when Kevin answers, it is more of Paddy's men. She's here. It's time to go and meet her. On the way, they walk past a man in a hood dressed in Mapleton police clothes. Is this a coincidence, or is this Kevin? Another version of Kevin? Or is this just another person who worked for Mapleton? He doesn't have time to ask as he's taken to Paddy's security team, who tell him to make like Jesus and put out his arms. The security man checks him for weapons, pats Kevin near his crotch and says, Congratulations! And then gives everyone the all clear. He tells everyone... Kevin is harmless.
In the hotel room, Gladys greets Kevin and tells him Paddy will be there soon. She warns him that there are a few topics off the table for discussion, and they include North Korea, gun control, abortion, and her ex-husband, Neil. Kevin agrees to this and excuses himself to go to the toilet. Before he can check to see if his gun is there, he discovers Holy Wayne, dressed in a suit, taking a dump. Kevin quickly turns around and walks back into the hotel room. Gladys offers him some water, but Kevin declines. Holy Wayne comes out and talks to Kevin. He feels like they've met before, and in fact, the last time he met Kevin, he feels like he was also sitting on the toilet. He says they are experiencing deja vu, where the mind takes a moment and mistakes it for a memory. As Holy Wayne explains, you can't trust the mind. It plays tricks. Paddy finally arrives, or as she is known here, Senate 11. She is in a good mood, even though she's been told that there might be someone in the hotel who was trying to assassinate her. She asks Kevin why that would be. Is it because she sticks to Kevin? She explains that assassins are never motivated by money or revenge, that often they share the same beliefs of the person they're killing. She claims that John Wilkes Booth believed in the same things Lincoln believed in, but killed him anyway. People would rather put a bullet in the head of someone than accept their truth. And what is her truth? Kevin suggests that she wants to destroy families. Patty loves this. She shares a story about a man handing her a baby and running away. They have no idea who the baby belongs to. She has now put that baby up for adoption and that baby will grow into a person who, due to these experiences, will be suspicious of the world and will find the world a cold and lonely place also at finding it very difficult to trust people. Paddy doesn't see this as a weakness, but a strength. This experience will make that child grow up stronger than ever. From the moment October 14th happened, it proved you can lose anyone at any given moment. Attachments are over. Our cave collapsed and we can dig through the rubble looking for signs of life or we can transform, says Paddy. She is curious to know how Kevin heard about the guilty remnant, and Kevin explains it was when his wife left him. Paddy guesses that must have been painful, but Kevin suggests it was no more painful than when Neil left her. There is a moment of silence, and Paddy commands Holy Wayne to kill Kevin. He pulls his gun, and Paddy bursts out laughing. She was only joking. Everyone needs to lighten up a little. Everyone laughs. Kevin asks if he can excuse himself to the bathroom and when he gets in there, he takes the lid off the toilet and finds the gun. He walks out and shoots Holy Wayne and Gladys dead. Before he can shoot Paddy, she begins to beg for her life. She says she's not really Paddy, she's a body double. They sent her away to have plastic surgery and everything and she begs Kevin not to shoot her. Goodbye, Paddy, says Kevin, and then he shoots her in the head. He stands there with his eyes closed waiting to return home, but nothing happens. Back down in the foyer, a clearly distressed Kevin asks Virgil what is going on. He's killed Paddy. Why hasn't he returned home? Virgil is confused. He doesn't even look like he knows who Kevin is. The bird lands alongside Virgil. He picks up a thick book and slams it down hard, killing the bird instantly. He lets everyone know that he got the bird, and people are relieved. Kevin tries to talk to him again, but Virgil still looks confused. Suddenly it dawns on him. He asks Virgil if he drank the water. I was so thirsty, Virgil says. He says this in a way that is sad, like he knows somewhere deep inside he's made a mistake. Kevin walks away and enters a lift where a cleric stands silently, crying to himself. Kevin takes the bandage off his hand and realises the cut has gone. 
Back at his room, Kevin finds the man who was with the little girl locked out of the hotel room, sitting on the floor drinking a bottle of bourbon. Kevin discovers his card doesn't work anymore and now he's locked out too. He sits with the man and shares a drink. The man asks what Kevin does for a job and he explains he's an international assassin. The man thinks that sounds great. You get to travel the world, kill people, no wife, no kids, no responsibilities. Kevin asks the man what he does. It turns out he does nothing. He's dead. He died choking on a chicken bone. Everyone in the hotel either can't remember their name or they have their crazy jobs like being an international assassin. All the man wants to do is find just one person who will take a shit on his chest. Kevin looks at the man and realises who he is. He's Neil and that little girl inside is Paddy. Kevin attacks the man and kills him. He then knocks on the door and young Paddy answers, a handwritten sign pinned to her dress. It reads, I need to keep my mouth shut. Hello, Kevin, says Paddy. He unpins the sign from her dress and takes her by the hand. She knows they're leaving and also knows where they're going. They approach Virgil downstairs and ask about a well. It turns out there is one in Jarden, Texas, called the Orphan's Well. He's going to throw me in, says Paddy. They drive through the night and Paddy reads out information about the well from a pamphlet. There is an ancient legend about the well that suggests it is a conduit between the spiritual world and the living. People make pilgrimages there all the time and hurl whatever they need to unburden themselves into the well. Paddy asks Kevin if she talks too much. This is what her father once told her and her father once hit her so hard she fell down and broke her teeth. Kevin is happy to listen to Paddy talk. When they arrive at Jarden, the town is quiet and there are burning drums littering the bridge. Kevin is confused. This isn't how he remembered the entrance to the town. He stops the car, but before they can discuss what to do next, a man attacks through the window, shattering it and dragging Kevin outside. He wraps a rope around Kevin's neck and wants to know what he's doing with the little girl. Kevin explains he's taking her to the well so he can throw her in and she's not showing any resistance. The man attaches the rope to the bridge and offers Kevin a choice. He can cross the bridge or he can jump and hang himself. Kevin doesn't understand the offer, but the man suggests that killing a child might not be something he wants to follow through with. Kevin says she's not a child, but the man counters that she is indeed a child and that if he throws her in the well, it will change him. Kevin tells the man that this isn't real, but once again the man stares back at him and tells him it is more real than it has ever been. Kevin takes off the rope and hurls it over the bridge. Paddy watches from the car as the man whispers something to Kevin. He walks over and takes Paddy out of the car, telling her they will have to walk to the well. Paddy asks if the man said something about her, but Kevin is evasive and denies this. Young Paddy is tired, so Kevin bends down and picks her up. He will carry her to the well. They walk and they walk and eventually arrive at the well. It is a place we recognise. It is the water hole that no longer contains water. It is where the cave woman lost her tribe, gave birth to her baby and died. It is where the teenage girls disappeared. Kevin sets Paddy on the wall of the well and looks at her. She asks if Kevin wants to push her or drop her in the well. Kevin is struggling. This is hard because he feels sorry for Paddy. The young girl offers to close her eyes. She tells Kevin that she deserves it, that she's a fat pig, that she's worthless. Kevin is crying. He doesn't like hearing this, but eventually he pushes her down into the well. He drops to the side, exhausted. Alone, he hears the eagle that the cave woman heard in that place before time. Then he hears Paddy's voice, the grown-up version that has haunted him. She's alive in the well, asking for help. 
Kevin tries to climb down the wall of the well but loses his footing and falls into the water. He crawls to a sitting position, blood on his face. Paddy tells a story. She tells a story about when she went on the quiz show Jeopardy. Her plan was to win $50,000 so she could leave Neil. She could start a new life. She needed to have something that was hers. She needed to experience a win. On the first night, she managed to win $7,000 and she noticed that the carryover champ didn't speak one word to Paddy. She noticed that there was a power in that. There was a power in silence. Paddy talks Kevin through the game, how she won that night and how she won the next night too. She won a third night, but on the fourth night she lost, but they let her keep what she had won up until that point. $65,300. It was more than she needed to leave Neil, more than she needed to start over, yet she didn't leave him. I'm scared, Kevin, says Paddy. Kevin leans over and takes Paddy in his arms, holding her, giving her solace. Then he rolls her over, face first into the water, and drowns her until she stops moving, down, alone, in the well, with his tears. He lays there, and then suddenly there's a great rumbling as an earthquake begins to shake the world. The stone walls crack, crumble, and come tumbling down on Kevin. He pushes through the dirt as the earth continues to shake and comes out from a grave covered in dust. He crawls to his knees and coughs, gagging on the dirt in his mouth. The earthquake finally subsides. He looks around, confused, alone, breathing, alive. Ahead of him, a flashlight cuts through the night and illuminates Kevin's face. It is Michael. He looks at Kevin in shock and says the only words that come to mind in this moment. Holy shit. Oh, I love this episode so much. And from the moment that Kevin died in the previous episode, I spent a week wondering how they were going to proceed. There was a part of me that wondered if they were going to kill Kevin off. Because remember, in The Lost Pilot, it was talked about getting Michael Keaton to star as Jack Shepard and then throwing a curveball and killing him off halfway through the episode. Could they do this to Kevin? I figured this couldn't play out that way because it would leave too many other plot lines dangling in a way that could only be answered in an unsatisfactory way. But there was a moment when I thought he might be dead. When he finds himself in the hotel not knowing how he came to be there, I was hooked. Often dreamlike states and TV or movies make the mistake of having those places be weird, but often your surroundings and dreams are quite mundane. To have him lost and then to just have him dress himself, it all felt right, even if it didn't make sense early on. And by the way, <laughs> fucking hell, how fit is Justin Thoreau? It's like, whew, oh my, someone open a door, let a breeze in. When Kevin has an opportunity to dress himself, he makes a mistake. He should pick the Mapleton police uniform because that is who he is, but he chooses the suit and becomes an international assassin. This is all the reason that Kevin's name isn't quite right because he doesn't adorn himself correctly. He should choose the police uniform, but instead he picks the suit. Therefore, his name isn't quite correct either. Neil tells Kevin that being an international assassin is great because he gets to kill people and not worry about a family or responsibilities, but this isn't true of Kevin who wants all of those things and shows he picked the wrong clothes. But he's scared of who he wants to be. He doesn't trust himself and therefore he makes a mistake at this point. This sets into play the series of events that take place in this other world. In some ways, this episode feels like what a TV version of Inception could play out as. If the hotel had begun to spin around, it would not have surprised me. 
The action scene is a good one and it ends with death. This is a place of death and rebirth. It permeates the whole proceedings. The weirdness of the mundane drives home that this place is otherworldly. A fire alarm isn't that weird. A TV turning on and off isn't the weirdest thing you will experience, but all in close proximity to each other, it is indeed bizarre and unsettling. Down in the lobby, we see everyone distracted by the bird. We know that birds symbolise freedom, and to have the bird trapped in the lobby represents that Kevin is trapped there. He is also trapped in his life, where his mind plays tricks on him and leads him astray. In dreams, birds are good omens, often representing life, rebirth and intelligence. We can understand why Virgil doesn't want anyone to catch the bird. He too hopes for this, and it is only after he has disobeyed his own rules and drinks the water, he is the one that kills the bird. There is no hope left for him. He is now in the beyond. We know that from what we saw in the previous episode, but now his only hope is a new life, if such a thing does exist. Maybe this is a bird that Erica has also uh, buried in her box. So Virgil killing the bird stops Erica from making another wish that may or may not have come true. Before Virgil drinks the water, he acts as Kevin's guide and he's surprised that he failed to adorn himself correctly. Virgil knows himself better than Kevin knows Kevin. This is why he is a concierge. He is there to guide. Now that he knows Kevin has chosen this path, he can explain what he has to do to escape this place. Virgil is a complicated character and we never saw his awful actions, but only the man that returned and believed he could atone for his previous life. He's compelling. He's an incredibly compelling character. He states that Kevin has to kill Patty, but this is a difficult process because she is clever. She knows this place better than him and can spread herself throughout the world so she can hide in plain sight. At first, he has to kill the symbolic Patty, the senator who is also the double. She is the powerful force that controls his unconscious, but in the moment that he is about to finally kill her, she reveals that she is a fraud, that she isn't real, that she was only made this way to protect the real Patty. This is what Paddy did in the real world by turning to the guilty remnant, and this is what Kevin has built Paddy to represent in his mind. Then Kevin has to connect with the real Paddy, a connection he has already made. Is the man that the young Paddy with, is that totally Neil, or is he also a representation of her father? Is he both, or did the two men just share awful similar qualities? If you believe this is all just a moment in Kevin's mind, we have to remember that Laurie told Kevin information about Patty when they were together, stuff that she should never have shared. Who knows what is buried in his subconscious from what Laurie's told him in the past. Down there where the world shifts and undulates, he understands that Patty never had a chance. She was a little girl who was abused. She was a grown woman who was treated even worse. When she manages to win all the money and even more so on Jeopardy, she is still incapable of leaving Neil. This is What often happens to people who have been treated so poorly throughout life, they can't find a way out to a better world even when the opportunity arises. We just spent 17 episodes believing Patty to be the devil. But in the end, she's just a distraught little girl who was treated poorly and believed the world was always about to end, and when it did, she snapped. This doesn't mean we forgive her for her horrible actions in Mapleton, but we understand how she came to be that person. Kevin is able to transcend the ghosts of Paddy to recognise the real one down in the well. When she tells Kevin she is scared, that's all she's ever been. How often are all of our actions dictated by the fear that we feel deep inside? 
Kevin isn't just haunted by Paddy, he's also haunted by his father, even if his intentions are good. Kevin is worried about his father's madness being passed down to him. He's obviously been living in the shadow of his father for a long time, and my interpretation of Kevin's awful anger issues comes from the testosterone that Kevin Garvey Sr. exhibits at all times. It isn't a surprise that his father finds him in this place, or that Kevin's subconscious manifests him there. It tells us a lot that his father is using fire to burn his way to Kevin, and that the fire alarm goes off every time he appears. Kevin Garvey Sr. is dangerous in lots of ways, and the hotel is attempting to warn him. When he's attached to the lie detector, it makes sense that he answers some questions incorrectly, mainly the questions that relate exactly to who he is. Kevin isn't certain. He's always struggled with the idea of himself, and that makes sense that these are the questions he can't answer correctly. This is the world trying to make sense of Kevin and help him have a better grasp of who he really is. He's already picked out the wrong clothes. How else can the hotel get him back on track? It also makes sense that Mary is here on her own, dressed like herself. It makes you wonder what Mary feels in the hotel, or what Kevin projects Mary feels at less. Kevin finding Holy Wayne here feels right, as does Gladys, two people who were overcome with a false belief who died violent deaths because of the paths that they chose. It looks like both were happy to drink the water, because why would either of them choose to remember the lies they led before? Maybe in the end this is why Virgil drinks the water to escape the pain of his life and the choices he made now that he's set Kevin on the correct path. All the scenes with young Paddy are heartbreaking and the performance by Thoreau is a masterpiece. You can see over the course of this episode how he goes from confused and scared to resolute in his journey to just being full of empathy. Listening to young Patty say in a very matter-of-fact way the terrible things that she's been taught to believe about herself, this is why we have to be so careful with children because you never know what lessons will imprint on the psyche forever. Kevin shows much more compassion to the young Patty, but he also has been warned not to listen because it will throw him from the path he has to take, the mission he has to follow through with. In death, in this in-between place, Kevin is able to show Patty the compassion she never received in life. The bridge is a great moment, the man on the bridge, and I'm being oblique here in case you don't know who that is, and if you don't know who it is, maybe just focus on the accent, I'll let you kind of work that one out yourself. It's it's kind of not that obvious, but you know, I don't know, I feel like that's a good one to just kind of work out yourself, but I'm guessing you probably have, but just in case you haven't, anyway, whatever. The man on the bridge, he's a force of elemental danger that has no interest in platitudes and only interested in the truth. He gives Kevin two options. He can either jump or cross. Kevin chooses to cross, which metaphorically means he chooses not to jump to conclusions to avoid his problems, but instead he has to walk to his problems. He has to cross them. No matter how painful they are, he has to face them. There is no clear road. It makes sense that Kevin, who continuously from this episode, has similarities to Christ, the Messiah. And so therefore, of course, he would choose to cross. (laughs) The path to this place wasn't easy, so why take the easy way out now? And what do you think the man says to Kevin on the bridge? Does he tell him what happened to the girls? Does he warn him that when he returns to the world of the living, he will be confronted by John and the handprint? Does he warn him that like the man at the top of the tower, even though you confront your demons and possibly vanquish them, it doesn't mean you will be truly free? 
Kevin is right that Patty isn't a little girl, but it doesn't mean she isn't either. She is both, but that is her burden, and Kevin has taken on enough. I love Kevin despite his deep flaws. He desperately wants to be a better person, a man of responsibility, a man that can be relied on, but when he fails, he is incapable of picking himself up and getting on with life. He wallows in his defeats, and maybe this is because of how he was brought up. What lessons were little Kevin taught just the way young Paddy was moulded? While we dig into all of this, though, don't forget this is a really funny episode. The ongoing gags about Thoreau's manhood continue to make me laugh. The way he disbelieves anything that is said to him is a breath of fresh air compared to other series where characters often just accept weirdness a little too easily. I love the Godfather moment, and in the Squid Bits part of this episode, I'll draw a parallel to another TV show that will help you resonate with that line. It is also exciting, an action movie with Thoreau pulling off not just the look, but all the moves too. It is heartbreaking when they finally reach the well, and with young Paddy talking about how she can make it easier for him, only to have the push happen so suddenly, it takes you a moment to realise it has happened. How would this story have played out if he had chosen the other clothes? We saw someone dressed in the pastor's clothes in the elevator crying. We saw the man with the executioner's hood on in the Mapleton police uniform being led away. We saw the guilty remnant ultimately be incapable of answering the questions the sudden departure provided. In the end, these three types of people are aspects of ourselves. Like the pastor, we long to believe in something greater than us. Like the cop, we adhere to the rules of the world. Like the cult, we want to hide from the greater truths. Kevin Sr. says that his son isn't an assassin, but maybe his father is underestimating him. In this place, for this moment, he needs to lose all the other qualities of his life and become a man of action to take control and free himself of the burden of the life that weighs him down. Only by becoming something he isn't, maybe he can finally find his way into becoming the person he truly wants to be. He makes the incorrect decision, but maybe in the long term, it is the only decision he could have made. Once he's down in the well where the cave once collapsed, this is the end of the line. He has dealt with the paddy that is shown to the world. He has dealt with the paddy who was hidden inside. Now he can just deal with paddy. He feels sorry for her. He understands her and it also illuminates who he is. We've seen Kevin illuminated by the car lights and we've seen him as the dawn has broken. The cave is a place where a woman's life changed in an instant. It also recalls the allegory of Plato's cave, the concept that allows us to ruminate on the idea of nature versus knowledge. Down in the well, alone with Paddy, he can find solace. He can show empathy. He can carry out his mission and finally be freed. The world crumbles around Kevin because it is no longer necessary. Like the Tesseract at the end of Interstellar, it has served the function and winks out of existence. Now Kevin is reborn, in the dirt of Jardin, in the town of Miracle. He has travelled to the world of the dead, the world of the shades, and now we will see if he's a changed man. Kevin is reborn. But there's only one problem. Kevin might be free of Paddy, but there are still issues in the real world that he will have to come to terms with. He is hoping that Kevin has the strength and fortitude to deal with what comes next. Okay, we have some squid bits, quite a few squid bits for this episode, as you can well imagine, an episode that deals with uh, mythology and deals with interpretation. 
So let's get into it. It appears if you drink the water, you forget who you were in the world of the living. This feels like a reference to the river Leith in Greek mythology. This was the river of forgetfulness. And in Virgil's epic poem, The Aeneid, it is only when the dead have had their memories erased by the Leith that they would be able to reincarnate. Maybe this is why Virgil in the episode drinks the water. He wants to forget his sins and reincarnate into a life where he can fully atone. Lindelof has said this episode was inspired by the Sopranos episodes Join the Club and Mayhem, where Tony was in the space between life and death while lost in a coma. That kind of explains the or draws a line to the Godfather reference as well. Uh, the quotes on the closet doors are from the Greek philosopher Epictetus. He taught that philosophy is a way of life and not just a theoretical discipline, that all our external events are beyond our control, so we should accept whatever happens to us calmly and dispassionately. In turn, individuals are responsible for their own actions, which they can examine and control through rigorous self-discipline. Uh, the gun hidden in the toilet, as I've already mentioned, is a homage to what happens in Mario Puzo's 1969 novel The Godfather and then again in Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 movie. Uh, there doesn't appear to be any historical support for Paddy's assertion that John Wilkes Booth hated slavery as he was a vocal supporter of the practice, so who knows what was going on with Crazy Paddy there. Lindelof has said that the writers decided to use Jeopardy for Paddy's story because the answers are formed in the shape of questions and that is what The Leftovers is more interested in, questions rather than answers. If you look up what happens on that show, The, the Real Jeopardy, on the 14th of October in 2013, you can see that it's not quite what happens in the world of the leftovers, but it's pretty similar. And uh, that's an interesting thing. It turns out when this episode went to air, I think the by chance someone got the question or the answer of Uzbekistan incorrect or Kazakhstan incorrect as well. There was so much on <laughs> Jeopardy. It, was, uh, it really started becoming, oh God, this is going to become a Jeopardy uh, podcast. But uh, if you have the time and inclination, check that out. Uh, the receptionist says that all the deliveries at the hotel come through the concierge. And then we see that it is Virgil. That is how Kevin came to this place through Virgil's actions. Later, he also tells Kevin that once he kills Patty, he will be delivered from this place. Kevin saves the girl from drowning when he doesn't know who she is. He then drowns the same girl knowing who she really is. Kevin is a saviour when he saves a little girl. He's also told to make like Jesus and put his arms out. This is all good to keep in mind as the series progresses, especially from here on in. Remember that drowning will play out in ways over the course of the series as well. The reason the fire alarm keeps going off is because Kevin Sr. is attempting to contact his son using fire as a conduit. The alarm goes off every time the TV turns on. I still also think it is the place warning Kevin about his father. Gladys keeps saying that they have to vet Kevin, which makes sense because when she was alive, she was a veterinarian. A little nice play on words. Kevin first saw Holy Wayne in a toilet and sees him here again in this world. The guilty remnants spray Kevin in the eyes, making them burn. Later, he washes his eyes and can see clearly again. Sight is a recurring theme as we hear when Kevin is told not to blink when the photo is taken as well. Kevin chokes Neil to death, which is ironic because Neil choked to death to get to that place. Uh, the music is Verdi's Va Pensirio. 
Uh, that's the music that keeps playing from the beginning throughout the episode. When Kevin and Patty are walking downstairs, though, the music doesn't start at the beginning, suggesting Kevin has finally made progress. The song is based on Psalm 137, part of which says, O daughter of Babylon, who art be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. These lines identify in uh, the plot of this episode, and FYI, Babylon was also the name of the motel where John beat up the palm reader. Meanwhile, the outro song, I've Been Buked and I've Been Scored, has already played at the end of the episode Cairo, which is also the episode that Paddy died. Young Paddy offers to close her eyes, continuing the theme of sight. All the classical elements appear, which include water, earth, fire and air. These are the classical elements that are recurring themes in Dante's comedy. In the episode, A Matter of Geography, Kevin physically and metaphorically digs up Paddy. In this episode, he physically and metaphorically buries her. There was also an earthquake where the well is situated back in the cavewoman's time. It looks like earthquakes have now saved Kevin twice from drowning in water and being buried alive. For the first half of the episode, it is daytime in this place, but as soon as Kevin realises the little girl is Paddy, it instantly becomes nighttime. When they arrive at the well, it is now dawn. This episode first aired on November 22nd, the date Kennedy was assassinated. Garvey has his name changed to Harvey, as in Lee Harvey Oswald. Ba-ba-ba! Coincidence. I'm guessing, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's not. Maybe they were that good at just bringing everything together. This episode was inspired by conversations with the consulting producer and religious scholar Reza Aslan, who explained that Kevin isn't a prophet, but a shaman. He receives information and dreams, but is given no guidance to interpreting them. A shaman has to die and go to the other side to be reborn with his powers. This is what inspired the writers to craft a story that would play out like their version of Dante's Inferno. The writers also knew that Kevin had to kill Paddy and pay off the line from Cairo when Paddy kills herself and says, you understand. They tried a number of approaches until one of the writers said that Kevin has to assassinate Paddy and that helped develop the world. Lindelof has said that the hotel isn't a psychotic break or a mythical place, but maybe somewhere in between. Some viewers don't like to think of the show as being supernatural and prefer that the sudden departure is the only moment that occurred that suggested a supernatural bent. The writers have made it clear that there are always explanations for non-magical interpretation, but you can also decide for yourself what it is. Once again, without giving too much away, there was a news report about a man who was believed to be dead who was resurrected in Australia. Maybe Kevin saw that story and it influenced this place. His father also told him he was travelling to Australia the day after this report. Keep all of that in mind. The birds are a story that we never see Kevin being told about, though. Maybe Nora told him the night Erica told her, or maybe Virgil told him the night he was sleepwalking, or maybe the place is supernatural and that is why the bird is there. To keep the supernatural theme going, the hotel could be a place for many people to find themselves. The Latina woman in Scrubs, talking to the concierge in the car park, is telling her possible guide that she isn't a doctor. Maybe she didn't adorn herself correctly. Then when we see her after everyone evacuates the hotel when the fire alarm has gone off, she's holding a cooler with a heart inside, and if she isn't let inside immediately, someone is going to die. Keep this in the back of your head too. This is something that I picked up on only maybe uh, this viewing. But anyway, 
Just remember that. The well reminded me of the ancient well that was the focus of Lost Season 6 in that Saeed is told not to listen to the man in black and to kill him immediately if you let him speak, all is lost. Which is what Kevin is told about the paddy double. The security guard congratulating Kevin on how well endowed he is references the tabloid focus on Justin Theroux and his tracksuit pants from the pilot. I will amusingly tell you to remember this as well. Paddy's line about the message of the guilty remnant being confusing is a reference to people complaining about the depiction of the GR in the first season. Mary, who was considered to be brain dead, appears in the hotel since it is between worlds. The man on the bridge is a character who may have died and returned to the living. Neil was alive in the Gladys episode, but maybe he's died choking on that chicken bone since then. Or is the chicken bone the one you make a wish on? And this is part of Kevin's wish to confront Neil to help him understand Patty so he finally understands who she is and why he has to push her into the well. Maybe I'm drawing a long bow there. Who knows? Kevin drives the same car that the girls drove before they disappeared. It's not just the same make, it is the same car. It has the same license plate number. To give us another sense that this place is mystical, the well is known as the Orphan's Well and is found where the cavewoman died and her child was saved. The well doesn't exist in present-day Jardin, so there is no way that Kevin should be able to know about this to have his subconscious name, the well, after something that occurred so many years ago. So maybe it is supernatural. That's up to you. I'm, I don't, uh, I'm not going to tell you what I think. I was about to tell you, but... Maybe we'll discuss it at the end. When we, when we finish the, the whole series, then I'll give you my thoughts. Uh, we are told the well provides a conduit between the world of the living and the spirit world. This is also known as Axis Mundi, which is also the title of the second season premiere. In the book, the Guilty Remnant's philosophy is that families are a discredited form in a post-departure world. There we go. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the Big Squid Podcast. It's slightly longer than normal, but I just love this episode so much. And I could have talked about it for a lot longer. But you know what? I'd love to know your thoughts and interpretations. If you're a member of our private Facebook page, please drop me a line there. I've put up a post that allows you to talk about this episode without fear of spoilers. If you haven't joined and would like to, don't hesitate and getting in touch and we'll bring you into our fun and interesting group. If you're enjoying the podcast and you have the inclination, please leave us a top review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us. I've had some wonderful feedback of late from listeners who have been finding new things to watch and listen via this podcast, and I cannot tell you how much I enjoy hearing that from you. If you would like to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter at JustinHamilton underscore, on Instagram under JustinHamiltonComedian, and also on Facebook. Or you can just write to me at my site, JustinHamilton.com.au, if you don't belong to any of those platforms. Let's finish with a quote from Epictetus. First say to yourself what you would be and then do what you have to do. That feels appropriate for this episode, doesn't it? All right. Until then.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.